This episode of Standard Orbit is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program for the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. Want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. My name is Nicholas Meyer, director of Star Trek 2 and 6, and you are listening to Standard Orbit on Trek FM. Risk is our business. It's like nothing we've dealt with before. My golly, Jim, I'm beginning to think I can cure a rainy day. I can't change the laws of physics. Now in standard orbit, sir. Welcome, everyone, to Standard Orbit, Trek FM's dedicated podcast to the original and new cast of Captain Kirk and the Enterprise. I'm your host, Zach Moore, and I'm joined by a very special guest this week from Set the Tape, the X-Files podcast, the X-Cast, as well as host, former host and founder of Primitive Culture here on Trek FM, Mr. Tony Black. What's up, Tony? Hi, Zach. It's nice to be nice to be back on Standard Orbit. It's been a while. It's been, uh, wow, I think it might have been the episode where we suggested uh, remaking The Final Frontier as an audio drama with... Me playing Sean Connery and Cyborg. <laughs> you know, we, we we still have to do that. We do. That is on my bucket list in life, really. Yeah. So I'll be disappointed <laughs> if we don't get around to that one day. But yeah, um, no, it's great to be back. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. So uh, you know, as I found growing up in Mojave, the best way to jump into a cold stream is to dive right in. So <laughs> we are going to dive right into our conversation today. We're going to talk about the incorporation of the original series into the second season of Star Trek Discovery. And yes, I know we are an original series podcast, but since Discovery chose to take so much from the original series, we're going to look at it through the lens of, you know, the characters, the story beats, those kinds of things they decided to incorporate into their show and kind of through the lens of the original series, how we think that all played out and if it was successful or not. Now, uh, Tony, you know, being like I mentioned, you're, you're kind of the webmaster over there at Set the Tape, and you and many of your writers have uh, been reviewing Star Trek Discovery uh, uh, and, you know, both seasons, but I've been following along this season especially. And just on the whole, kind of a, an overview, what, where, are you, where did you land now that all the dust is settled and the, the time paradoxes have been resolved, <laughs> allegedly, uh, where does the dust settle for you? on Star Trek Discovery Season 2, just so, just so kind of have a framework for where you're coming from on this. I'm going to upset some people now. and It's a loaded question, I, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, some people who uh, know me on maybe the Babel Conference and, you know, on Twitter and Facebook probably have some idea to the answer to this question already. Uh, but I wasn't massively a fan of the second season of Discovery. Let me, let me just put this into context because I have... In certain, we may get onto this later, but in certain sections of, of the fandom, certainly no one in Trek FM, I have been l- labelled with a few different things for critiquing 
this season two of Discovery, particularly a hater of Star Trek. Now, anyone who knows me from Trek FM knows Primitive Culture has heard me on this before, knows that, you know, you, you don't co-create a, a, a podcast on Star Trek if you hate Star Trek. That's not the case. I enjoyed season one of Discovery. I love the fact Star Trek is on TV. I love this renaissance of Star Trek on CBS, All Access. You know, all the shows we're going to get, the fact Discovery is on the air. It's great. It's great. It's the best time to be a Star Trek fan since probably, I would say, 1995 or so, when we had like nearly three shows on air, 1994. So let's get in that out of the way. And the fact that I did enjoy Star Trek Discovery season one, um, season two, the problem, I think the, the the easiest way for me to put this, and this ties into the podcast we're doing now and what we're talking about and the reason I'm on today is that I struggled with the fact that season two of Discovery is not really a show called Star Trek Discovery. Season two of Discovery is Star Trek, the original series, 0.5, basically. It is... Not the prequel to the Star Trek original series era, as season one, set 10 years before, you know, blah, 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 was. This is the prequel to season one of Star Trek, the original series. (laughs) (laughs) And I fundamentally have a problem with that for various different reasons. And I think the result of of that was was a really flawed story arc that really struggle to make sense doesn't tie up i think in fact the trek fm founder chris jones said this recently on on the edge on postcards from the edge i think it was about how there are so many inconsistencies with the plotting and he's right you know and this is something that i think people have got a little bit carried away in terms of all the spectacle and 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 all the things that are good about the second season and i will come on to that but i think there are if you break it down fundamentally this season of discovery is a backward step, quite a significant backward step for this for, for this show and right now for the Star Trek franchise, I think. But it's not the most popular opinion, Zach, to be honest. Yeah, and you know, I lean towards that side as well. I mean, honestly, I, I do think season one was better just because it seemed just more of its own identity. Mm. Uh, I mean, even though you had, and again, I my, my stance on Discovery is uh, like I wish that it had been completely disconnected from Star Trek that had come before. I did. I think I think most of its problems honestly stem from the prequelitis, which really came mm. to the fore in season two, which you're describing. I, I love your terminology and a lot of your uh, your articles on it. <laughs> TOS zero point five. That's exactly <laughs> what what it is. It's uh, leading into season one of of of, of TOS and. We didn't need a main character who was Spock's sister or his adopted sister who we never heard before, blah, 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 blah. I get it, okay? That was a major misstep because you're... I mean, it's not like... And the, the, the analogy I've used in the past is it's not like Geordi was Uhura's grandson on The Next Generation or something. Mm, it's like mm. everybody was... Riker was not Kirk's grandson, things like that. We didn't need that, yeah. you know? And I I felt they felt the need. They, they, they felt the need that they needed that for whatever reason. Uh, to tie old oh, now we can use Sarek and we can use Amanda we can use okay okay I guess so yeah uh, but if this if Discovery season one and I I believe this 100 percent and I know people disagree and that's fine but if Discovery season one w- was set in the 25th century and Michael Burnham was just a human who was raised on Vulcan 
mm. and you wanted to, you know, and had no familial connections to the original series, so much of the baggage of what the fans bring to it would be just uh, dispersed. It wouldn't be an issue. You wouldn't, you wouldn't have to have the con- like. You can't have a conversation without Discovery talking about like, what about all the continuity problems with Star Trek? We never heard of Michael Byrne before. What about these holograms? What about the spore drive? Blah 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 blah. Right, all these things. Right, but then to me, the thing that that somewhat circles around and justifies all those complaints is season two. Their resolution to all of that is to say it's all top secret. It never happened. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's like it's it's so. I mean. It is, and I, I, again, I mean this without any disrespect to people who write this stuff, but it is so much like fan fiction that you would see on fanfiction.net or you would see at various different... You know, I used to be involved in fan fiction quite a lot. I was involved in a website where we produced scripts. We produced, you know... Um, and I talked about this on Primitive Culture because I did a Star Trek series. I did a Star Trek series set in the future, in like the 29th century. It was a time travel ship. And, you know, we, we wrote scripts like this and we did all these kind of things. And there were lots of things in, in some of those scripts, you know, when it was linked to, to actual, you know, franchises, IPs, major IPs that were really that were really doing certain things that you wouldn't see on TV because, you know, and Spock's sister, Spock's sister being Burnham is, is a great example because it's, it's one of those things where, okay... Back in the 60s, nobody knew that Spock had a sister. So the reason that nobody mentioned Michael Burnham is, in theory, because she was not invented, obviously. From that from that point of view, you've got to take it there. But, you know, they've had to really work hard to explain away why Spock never talks about his sister. His, you know, his, his, his adopted sister, who had he had this heck of, a, of an adventure with and this real sort of, you know, relationship with back then to Kirk to Bones to all of these people who were really important to him why him and Sarek never talk about it you know why it's not mentioned in any other material it's they have to work really hard to shoehorn that in when the reality is there is no reason no reason why Burnham had to be related to Spock for except for the one fact that Discovery has has been balancing since the beginning and it's this nostalgic attempt to connect Discovery directly to a property that people enjoy, people people adore the original series. You know, it was built off the back of the J.J. Abrams films, and you know the nostalgia of tapping back into a new Kirk, a new Spark, the entire crew. And yes, those films are divisive, but you know you you can't deny that a lot of the influence on how Discovery was is made, is is filmed, is is taking a cue from the Abrams movies, from you know Justin Lin's Star Trek Beyond, and it is. It is, it, Star Trek moved away from the 90s when it was the next generation era, when it was, you know, the, the prequel enterprise and moved into tapping back into nostalgia, partly for economic reasons, partly for getting people back into the franchise. Because even if you're not a Star Trek fan, you probably know who Spock is. You, pro- you probably know who Captain Kirk is. They did this in order to draw back in fans and people who weren't, massive fans of the franchise to build a new audience and it worked but what discovery did the reason it was a prequel the reason they went back to that era is because they could tether it to characters that you recognize and you will go into that watch that star trek series for and all through that first season everybody knew eventually spock was going to come into this you know to the extent i mean i don't think anyone quite expected what we got but it was it was always going to happen soon. The moment you make Burnham Sarek's daughter, the moment you make him Spock's her Spock's sister, you immediately make Discovery not a show about Discovery. You make it a show about 
the original series. And that's been the problem since the beginning. Season one was more inventive in how it skirted around that and how it tried to fill out the, the universe. But season two has just given into this nostalgia, has given into this complete obsession with trying to tether everything back to the 60s, back to what we knew, back to what people are familiar with, comfortable with, safe with, instead of pushing out into the final frontier. And we'll get to this later, I'm sure, but part of the reason I'm very, I'm looking forward to season three, but I'm very cynical about it is because I think the writers have been hearing people go, why isn't it, why isn't this show about any discovery? Like what, yeah, what exactly. you know, yeah. like it, it almost, the name of the show is ironic for these first two seasons because <laughs> it's not about discovering anything. If anything, it's about going back to what we know before. And I have a real problem with that in this in this landscape right now, in the way television is. I think it's a retrograde move. I really do. And that's a great segue into kind of our main topic. And that being TOS season 0.5. And the, the seeds of this were planted in the season one finale. Will You Take My Hand, Star Trek Discovery season one, episode 15. And the coda scene of the season is the Enterprise shows up. And I, and and we're like, I knew they were gonna do it. I didn't yeah. know when, but they could not help themselves. Yeah. And there was the season one finale, and stuff like this has really taught me to really appreciate Gene Roddenberry's staunchness and kind of stubbornness in the in the early years of Next Generation, where he was like, all right, although they violate this in the first two episodes by McCoy showing up <laughs> yeah. in the flesh and then mentioning Captain Kirk, the Enterprise, and having a sequel episode to original series episode, <laughs> you. You ignore that. Yeah, forget that. <laughs> ignore that. And then for the next, you know, three, four years, there's no TOS mention crossover. You have Sarek finally shows up at the end of season three, and Iris Stephen Burr has discussed, like, they had to fight so hard to get him to, to for Picard to say the word Spock, yeah. you know, in that episode. And it's like, that's kind of stubborn. But then, but then you look at the other extreme of this, and you're like, oh, okay, he had a point. Because you can't, you have to win people over on the new characters. If you if you keep the old characters around, you're never going to let go of them and embrace new ones. So, bringing in the Enterprise, while a great shot of adrenaline and interest, which set the internet on fire for you know the, the hiatus between season one and season two of Discovery, uh, it kind of it kind of paints you in a box where like, well, what do you do mm. at that point? Now here here's the Enterprise, uh, presumably Captain Pike. Over there, yeah, is number one over there too. Is Spock over there? You know, uh, we even get the shared glance between Burnham and Sarek, right? When it's like, oh, the Enterprise. Well, they know it's Spock's over there. Or at least he's supposed to be. You know, and then we jump into season two, and it's and it's all about this, and and that's and then and, and then you get your and then you get your whole other side argument, which we discuss on and off here, uh, recent recent months on Standard. But it's like your episodic versus your story arc television. You have locked yourself now. You didn't have to do this, right? You could have had the Enterprise show up and maybe have like a two-part seasons premiere extravaganza with the Enterprise and gone your separate ways. And I think that might have been the smarter way to do it if mm-hmm. they had to introduce the Enterprise, right? You address why Spock and Michael don't have the relationship, and then you, and then you kind of go on your separate ways. But then they lock themselves into this season-long story arc where it's like the search for Spock, yeah, you know, for half the season, and then and then the secret origin of Captain Pike as well. Mm-hmm. So, uh, what what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I mean, I, I, I'm not, I'm not gonna lie. I, I was excited when I saw the Enterprise at the end of the season one finale. You know, I, I think any Star Trek fan would have been. You know, a, a brand new 
CGI version of that old ship. It was it was a great moment. It looked great. And, it looked yeah, great. it looked great. It was a great moment to end the season on. And you know, it, it was it's a really good cliffhanger moment. It is. There's no denying that at all. But I think season two is is one of those things where you know you talk about the the difference between storytelling the storytelling aspect you know the the season-long arc and the episodic arc this has been a big problem i think discovery has had and i don't really think it's very good at actually telling long-form storytelling really and you know first season was was because of a lot of and the problem it's had is that it's had a lot of behind the scenes problems it's had like three different sets of showrunners in both seasons it's had these same problems in both yeah. seasons in season one you can really see the join between the point where it actually shifts from the klingon war arc into the mirror universe arc and yes if when you watch it back and you you, you know you can tell that the plan with Lorca was there from the beginning sure okay there were you know you do there is clear evidence they had an idea of where they were going but there's no way that they knew what the final episode of season one was going to be um, at the beginning. In in the Vulcan Hello, there's no way they knew the content of what will you take my hand. I don't believe that for a second. I believe a lot of it was was tw- tw- tweaked and rewritten. The problem you have with long-form storytelling is that you've, you know, only the really the best writers out there and the most consistent writing teams can really write a season like that on the fly, making, you know, decisions as they go and really make it coherent and work. And, you know, Alex Kurtzman's team on Discovery is not good enough to do that right now. They really struggled with that in season two because the first, roughly about the first five or six six um, episodes was Aaron Harberts and Gretchen Berg who were in charge. And that leads up roughly to the point where Spock is found and enters the fray. And then Kurtzman, who obviously is overseeing a lot of it as co-creator, comes in and properly showruns. As far as I'm, as far as I'm, I, I'm aware, do feel free to correct me anyone if i'm wrong on that but you i think at that point you feel a slight shift and a slight change and i think they'd figured out the beginning arc with spock and then afterwards it sort of swerves off you know i don't believe for a minute at the beginning of the season they knew that it was going to be burnt the red angel was going to be burnham's mother you know i just i just don't believe it i think these things were sort of swerved into and added and and that's why by the time you get to the finale it doesn't completely make sense and i think the problem you have with this kind of long form storytelling is a you need to know really where you're going with it and especially with a time travel story and have it all connect and you also you know need to distinguish you know what is a star trek story it doesn't have to be standalone solo episodes every week and we we're, we're not in the era that, that that exists really anymore outside of certain standard network you know crime drama shows or you know investigative shows and things like that you know genre television has moved on but Star Trek still needs to be about something. You know, every week you watch an episode, it needs to be memorable and be about something. And I think the problem with Discovery Season 2 is if you look at these episodes on an individual basis, they are, by and large, barring maybe two or three examples across this season, they are part of a broader whole that isn't very coherent, that doesn't really fit together, and is purely there to service primarily two, three characters. Burnham, understandably, Spock and Captain Pike. Now, yes. this is, this is the, what it does is, I mean, and the, the final scene of the series, of the season, is an absolute cap on it. It's a perfect indication of how this hasn't been about the Discovery crew, really. You know, the final scene right. is the Enterprise warping off. 
into into the unknown. And I'm like, hang on, what show are we watching here? Like th- this? Well, no, no, absolutely. I I said this a couple of weeks ago uh, on the show, and I've said it on social media as well, and and in normal conversation with people, it's like if you know nothing about what the behind the scenes feature of the Star Trek franchise was on television, you would say, oh, okay. Well, the Discovery, they're all gone now, and now we know why they weren't in the in the past Star Trek reference or anything. They, they, that, they've tied that up, sent them to the future. They've classified. We're never going to hear about them again. Now we're with the Enterprise crew, with Spock and Pike and Number One, all these characters that we used to know, we know again, and now we're all fans of again. And they're going to warp off to their next adventure, and I can't wait for Star Trek Pike starting next season, right? I yeah. mean, how do you not read it that way, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, is, is, that, is, the, is the name Discovery a broader name Instead of being named after the ship, is it a broader name about you know a Star Trek crew discovering? You know, in, if if you didn't know the intricacies of television and know how it works, you might think, oh, okay, okay, well, all those characters are locked off now. They've gone into the future. Fine, it's all done. You know, now let's carry on with Pike. Now that the reality is, I mean, I would not be remotely surprised if we don't get a Captain Pike Spark Number One at least miniseries from CBS down the line. Right. It would it would be a massive, massive missed opportunity if they don't do that. It, it really would, and I think. On, on, on an individ- on, on its own, while I don't think it's necessary, really, I think it would be perfectly right. well, perfectly good. I think it would be right. a perfectly good show. I think it would be perfectly enjoyable. And I'd like to think it would be a little bit more in tune with with the 60s in itself in its own way. But I, I, I and we may well get that. But the, the problem is when you create a show with an entirely new set of characters and then you essentially sideline the majority of them for most of the season and you give them little bits to do here and there and you focus on characters who we know from historical lore and you only really know, you know, the only people who would have really known who Captain Pike was going into that season were people who watched the original series or who'd watched the J.J. Abrams' first two movies. You know, he's, he's a character that everyone who watches Star Trek, like we do, who watches the original series, has a real fondness for and he's excited to see. And he is a thrill, you know? But right. to make him a, a really key central point of, of the second series of a new Star Trek sh- series, even if it is set in the same era, is the most absurd fan fiction idea I have ever heard, <laughs> right? It is, it, is, it is ridiculous. It is the sort of thing that I can't believe. You know, and you mentioned about the McCoy thing. Now, the McCoy thing, I understand in 1987 doing... As a, as, in fact, as a way of really sort of hammering down the passage of time, you know, making it very clear, yes. okay, we're now 70 years or whatever into the future, 80 years into the future, whatever it was. Um, I get that on The Next Generation. I understand that little, you know, it's a nice little wink to the old show. It's a way of showing the passage of time. But like you said, Next Generation very, very quickly tried to move away from just, it, it, it told very similar sort of, you know, parables and tales to the in the first two seasons anyway, to the original series in many respects. But it wasn't about the old characters. It wasn't about anything. They had to fight to include references. You know, by the time you saw Spock in Unification, it felt so rich and earned because it was five seasons in, you know? Now, compare that to this. Compare that to seeing a younger Spock building your entire arc around the search for that character a character who anyone who's just watching Discovery is is going to go, okay, Spock, yeah, wasn't he in... He was in, like... He's a major character, right, from the old series. Yeah, okay. But building that and not making it about, you know, the more characters who are in that show more is just a really cynical decision 
and it is not it's about nothing to me except if if you we can do this because that guy who liked star trek will come and watch this show who may not have bothered because it's a new show it is a cynical move to get in more viewers for me and that's what it's been from the beginning i have thought about this long and hard obviously as we do as trek fans and podcasters and writers right and I think, you know, and I try to take a step back and look at, all right, is there a precedent for something like this in Star Trek, right? And I think, oh, well, you and I both really love Deep Space Nine, Tony. Mm. And in the fourth season of Deep Space Nine, they bring on Worf, and he becomes part of the show mm. for the re- remainder of that show. But I think there's two major things about that. First of all, that's three seasons in yeah. to Deep Space Nine. Right? Yeah. Uh, and then also you have Michael Dorn, who has been playing Worf for the last several years, continuing to play Worf in the movies and Deep Space Nine. And to me, that enriches the established universe of what's yeah. continuing on. And he he was such a natural fit onto the show, and he never overshadowed the other characters. Deep Space Nine was a great ensemble show, show, and a lot of people, myself included, think he actually is much better served on that show yeah. than in Next Generation. So, I, I mean, th- the difference here is that you have, I mean, this is the the third main actor because I mean, many people played Spock different ages, okay? But like the third main actor to play Spock now in another and yet another prequel, which which con- kind of contradicts a lot of things, so it comes with a lot of baggage. So you got to explain that too. And I think those are very different. Those are apples and oranges, in my opinion. Mm. Uh, Worf on D Space Nine versus Spock on Discovery. Well, imagine, imagine, right? Imagine if the right, imagine if Iron Stephen Bear and Robert Hewitt Wolf and all those guys had decided to use Wolf, and they went, "Hey, right, let's this this hasn't been contradicted. Let's say that that uh, Cisco's mum was a Klingon, right? And let's have it that Wolf is actually Cisco's half brother, and they've got the same mum, okay? And or you know whether it was his was was Worf I can't remember was Worf half human or he had he had pet no he wasn't was it he had <laughs> Worf was a, he was adopted he was, he adopted. was adopted that was it by the Rizenkos, wasn't he and he had Klingon right. parents who died at Kitima that was it so imagine right correct it, okay imagine oh ne- ne- wobbling my Star Trek law there Zach oh <laughs> sorry everyone okay but imagine right if they'd done that and then suddenly you know Cisco is the third son of Moch okay. And that, you know, Kern turns up and then the whole of season four of Deep Space Nine <laughs> becomes about the sons of Moch. And Cisco is suddenly yeah. a son of Moch, right? Imagine what that would have been. Worf becomes the, the center of Deep Space Nine. In season four, yes, okay, it becomes about the Klingon, the resurgent Klingon tensions. And, Cis- and you know, Worf plays a fairly big part in that. But he's part of a bigger ensemble. And that show, uh, throughout the next, you know, five seasons or at four or five seasons, however long it is, because it because it doesn't it does serialization to some extent, but because it does individual episodes, you get the Wharf episodes, but you get them equally as on on the same level as you would get the the Cisco episodes, episodes or the Dax episodes or the you know the Odo episodes or the Kira episodes, and it doesn't become just about that guy and his situation. But the problem with Discovery, and the difference with Discovery, is that because they've tried to really root this whole thing around Michael Burnham and her family situation with spark and sarek and amanda and all this kind of thing purely to drag in this original series audience and to tap into this nostalgia and to make everyone remember the 60s and oh spark and oh pike and number one and the enterprise oh maybe we'll see young kirk oh amazing right it fundamentally is at the expense of characters like tilly who gets naff all to do except a really weird arc at the beginning of the season where she's swallowed up by a 
slog and then ends up in a weird ultimate dimension or whatever it is. Stamets and Corba, which I think, as much as I think, that, and if I got into a little bit of a conversation briefly with Wilson Cruz about this on Twitter. Yes, I saw um, that. Yes. In which I'd said something, I think Brandon Metallo was talking about, um, should should Corba have come back? And I said, no, I wish he'd stayed dead. And I think Wilson was a little bit upset. <laughs> I said, yes, yes. I said, this isn't a reflection on your performance. Your performance is good. The character of Corba is fine but it would have been far more dramatically interesting for Stamets if he properly had to go through a grieving process and Kolber had stayed dead as opposed to, you know, oh, well, actually, let's bring him back and do all that kind of... You know, it's Discovery Season 2 undoes everything that Season 1 tried to do to the characters, you know, and it only really focuses on certain people. Saru gets a fair bit to do, you know, yeah. he gets certain episodes, but it, it's directly trying to neuter him and all the things that made him quite cranky and irascible and weird, taking away his ganglia, all these kind of things. You think, okay, I like him more towards the end. I can understand him being the captain in season three, but he's not the character you started with at the beginning and not necessarily in a good way. It doesn't feel earned. The payoff isn't there because you've spent so well, long focusing on characters who aren't even going to be in the next season. And that's my problem. Ultimately, side note on Saru, uh, talk about continuity, right? I mean, him and Michael Burnham are now like a surrogate brother and sister, which is not the relationship oh. from season one, yeah, or the relationship on the Shinzu, which they served together for seven years and still had an adversarial relationship by the time of the discovery launch, right? Yeah, so I because we, we, we saw from the minute she got on the ship and in the flashbacks in season one to the premiere. I mean, and then in season one, he's like, you are a danger to this crew. And that was an interesting dynamic. The char- there was character mm. conflict, you know. Uh, but that's, oh, you're my brother, Saru. And, oh, you're my sister, Michael. It's like, no. 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 It, it's Discovery season two is doing things with characters, with plots that are in any other show, a season four or five kind of payoff. It is not. It has not invested the time and the space in order to build to that because it spent too long worrying about whether Spock is, is a murderer course he's not it's spock worrying about whether pike is gonna you know um die or not or or get you know have a mysterious destiny well we know what happens to pike right we don't may not know why but so does pike now so does pike now and don't even get me started on that and i I, don't get me started on these time crystals seriously (laughs) i mean what the hell is going on with that but you know i mean oh I'm, get, I'm getting quite animated uh, uh, now. Take a, we can take a step back, and we can actually talk about the irony of all this, Tony, and mm. kind of go through a couple of the characters, right? Because as you mentioned, I think that was a great point there. The the the, the trinity of, of Discovery Season 2 is Burnham, Spock, and Pike, mm. right? And and all the other characters become basically Sulu, Chekhov, and Uhura, right? Of the original series. Yeah. The Stamets and all of them, that they become glorified extras. Now, they do have story beats. They do have points they follow up on, right? But they are just there to function in a sto- in a greater story about characters, mm. as you said, who aren't even going to be on this show next year, which is just mm. such an odd decision. It's really weird. <laughs> and yeah. So you have Captain Pike, right? And that the irony of all of this is he is the most popular thing to come out of Discovery. Mm. And especially season two. And (laughs) I think no matter, and we had a, you know, last week on center, we had a whole show about Captain Pike and we talked about how he was just the breakout character. And and no matter where you sit on the spectrum of discovery, and I don't know, Hey, there might be people who, who disagree. I think we can all say that Anson Mount's Captain Pike was a great character and he was the best part of season two. Yeah. Without a shadow of a doubt. And I've said, I've said as much elsewhere. He's great. 
He's great. He he takes what Jeffrey Hunter sort of planted in there in 65 and he really does great work with it. He's not given the writing that he should be given. He's not given the material that he deserves I for me. But yeah, he's great. I would happily... I would happily see the character again. I don't know if I really want to see a Captain Pike show because I don't know what it adds beyond more fan fiction but um, on screen. But I think, you know, if he popped up again later on, if and when the Discovery gets back to the 23rd century, then great. You know, he, 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 was, he was great because I think what he, what he did was, you know, Pike in this, he's the, he is the prototypical Starfleet captain. You know, I was, I, was, I was talking about this with someone else, or I may have written about it, how, you know, every single captain we've seen on Star Trek over the years has not been, to some extent, with, with the possible exception maybe of, of, of Jonathan Archer, has not been a prototypical, usual Starfleet captain in the, in the square-jawed, you know, American hero fan fiction model. You've, you've got, you know, um, Kirk, who was, he was a loose cannon, really. He was a space cowboy compared to Pike. Right, and and this season really shows that you've got Picard, who was a bald Frenchman, who was in his middle aged, really, and very noble Shakespearean character. But he's not your your usual kind of figure. You had Cisco, who was a you know quite haunted, tragic black guy on television, who then has this manifest religious destiny. You've got Janeway, who was a, a, a matriarch, who then becomes the mother of a lost crew. You know, you've you, you don't have any leader. And then you've got Discovery, which, you know, the first season, it's its captain is, is an evil mirror universe murderer, right? So Pike is the first captain on any Star Trek series, really, to fit that ideal model of what a Starfleet captain should be. You know, that he's noble, he's dignified, he's, he's commanding, he's sensitive, he's caring. You know, he's, he's really professional. You would trust him with your life completely. Yet at the same time, he's not dull. He's not boring. He's quite witty. And that that's down to Mount. That's down to Anson Mount bringing that out of the scripts when it's not always necessarily on the page. So I think Pike's great in that context, but he serves a, a really unusual function. And I think people maybe don't realise how unusual in a way he is, even though he is what everyone would imagine and what thousands of people probably write in their fan fiction as what an ideal Starfleet captain should be. And I think he works because he works in the same way like James Cromwell as Zephyrin Cochran works in First Contact because Captain Pike was in an episode, two episodes, three episodes, right? <laughs> how do you want? How many hairs do you want to split when you talk about that, right? <laughs> yeah. Of the original series. Mm. And he was a historical figure, and we liked him in the episode he was in, and all the Star Trek fans knew Zephyrin Cochran had been Warp Drive, and Captain Pike was the captain for Kirk. And you can pick up these threads years later in First Contact, the movie, or Star Trek 09, the movie, or now Star Trek Discovery Season 2. And they're enough of a blank canvas that you can do kind of, as, as long as you don't fly in the face of what we saw in the limited screen time of that character in the past, you can pretty much do whatever you want with them. Um, and I think that gives you the lead way to do stuff, right? And so I think that's why Pike works so well here because you you believe you believe in the performance, you believe in the writing, and I agree with you as limited as it is because I feel like they really didn't really get a Pike episode. I mean, the closest thing to them are arguably my two favorite se episodes of the season. Maybe actually the time crystals kind of really throw it off, but I did like the I, I like the Pike 
adventure, the subplot of him in uh, Valley of the Shadows. Just the fact that he was on a, on a landing party mission on mm-hmm. his own and had to kind of do something. So that was like, okay, I want more of that. Yeah. And then, of course, of course, New Eden, New Eden. is my favorite episode of yeah. the season. I think most people saw it as well. Yeah. My, my, my favorite, I think, is probably The Sands of Thunder. The Saru yes, one. Yeah, that's my top three. Yeah, because yeah, that's a proper, you know, condensed, told Star Trek story with a beginning, middle, and end within the big, bigger framework. But yeah, New Eden's great. And it is because, it is because of Pike. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Getting him down on a planet, you know, and, and doing that kind of captain stuff is is absolutely true. Um, it, you know, it, it's, it's one of those things where the problem with the other subplot on Through the Valley of the Shadows is that by... By having Pike become aware of his destiny, I think it's one of those things where, again, you're playing to the gallery. You know, we know that that we know that the menagerie happens. Okay, we know that we get to a point where Spock is is there and he's you know trying to explain away what happened to his former captain, and you've got all the you know cage scenes. We know about all that. Okay, that happened in the past. We know that, but the characters don't. So to actually have Pike, you know, using these time crystals. Can't even believe I'm using those words, time crystals. <laughs> using these time crystals to to know that he's got this really weird, horrible, you know, I, I'm Davros from Doctor Who destiny, right? Is for me more about again more about nodding and nudging to the audience and going, hey, hey, look, Captain, look, Captain Pike, look what happens to him, as opposed to actually being about what he logically should know, because destiny and Star Trek. It, you you need to really know what you're doing with that, and it's arguably the only the only show that's ever done it is DS9 with Cisco, and even that, in terms of how it's all worked in, is a bit spotty in places. You've got to be careful how you do it, you know. And I I think this was really shoehorned and wedged in for Pike. Yeah, I I agree that the fact that he the, the fact there are things like destiny and and Star Trek it doesn't doesn't gel with me, mm. um, and they couldn't help themselves of course they i knew they were going to do it i knew they couldn't help themselves <laughs> we, we were going to we were going to see pike in that chair yeah at some point of this season it was inevitable now i i did like the execu- like in concept i 100% disagree that that was part of an episode and that he has knowledge of his future 100% disagree all right but i will give them credit i liked the interpretation of it i liked how it was um anson mount's performance and reaction to it you know that kind of sold me on it, you know his his horror and shock and mm. his overcoming his fear to kind of take the crystal and go on his business. Like, I, I liked that that that, but at the same time, I, I I it's it's so hard to say like, oh okay, well now he goes to the next ten years and knows he's gonna have a horrible fate. The other thing is that it would make a Captain Pike series really weirdly morbid, wouldn't it? You know, because he knows that are they just gonna would they just ignore that? Would they just have him be zipping around the galaxy, you know, in that crew? without mentioning the fact that he's, he's aware that he's got this really weird, quite sinister fate. Even though, yes, okay, we know ultimately that he has some level of happiness, I guess, with Vina in the Telosian, you know, whatever. But right. ultimately, he doesn't know that. He doesn't know that's coming. Yeah, he you doesn't know, know that part. No. no, we do, but he doesn't. So, it, you know, he, he, that would be weird. It would be a weird sort of thing, really sort of hanging over the character. You know, I I think have, making him aware, you know, you, you could have... There could have been another way where you sort of hinted towards that without him knowing, you know? 
And I don't quite know how you would have done that. Maybe somebody else has a vision. Maybe Spock has a vision of it and does never tells him or something, you know? Or so, something yeah, that like that. would be much smarter. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, you know, what's done is done, ultimately. It, it doesn't take away from right. the fact that he is a good character and he is well played. And mm-hmm. he is he is the best thing about the season. You know, there's no question about it. Even with everything else that doesn't work, Pike does. Which is great, actually, because, you know, it, it is one of those things where, much as it is too much fan fiction in general... I don't think having Pike in there is is a bad idea necessarily, and uh, you know what I mean. I don't think including him in this world is a bad thing, and fleshing the character out is a bad thing at all because we haven't seen much of him really in the prime timeline. Um, so yeah, he he was he's one of the few really good things about it. He he was a win. Now now of, of all the other TOS elements they incorporated in season two, what other ones, if any, would you consider a win or a wise decision? I think, firstly, one thing I have to say about Discovery in general is that it looks fantastic, okay? From day one, it's looked brilliant. It's all there on the screen in terms of the sets, production, effects, you know. What I really loved about the two-part finale, Such Sweet Sorrow, is that unlike the Abrams films, the Enterprise and the Discovery aren't zipping about like, you know, Star Wars, you know, ships. They are in the middle of of a space battle where they're pretty much stationary. Okay, and move it, and that's likely that Star Trek of old. I really appreciated things like that. There is some level of you know continuity and stuff. I really loved the Enterprise Bridge. I loved the way they integrated the '60s you know look with the modern aesthetic because they couldn't. I was talking to someone on Twitter about this as well. They were arguing that it, it didn't work because in you know Trials and Tribulations we we'd seen those characters interact with the '60s bridge. You know, in Enterprise. In in a mirror darkly, we'd seen the alternate bridge of the you know um, I think was it Defiant, Defiant, yeah. Defiant um, which is the Enterprise bridge repurposed. And my point was, <laughs> yes. But, but yes, my point was yes, but that was intentionally nostalgic about that specific era in the nineties. Had they had they made Discovery in the nineties, the bridge of the Enterprise would have been updated to fit the nineties modern aesthetic as well as the sixties. And that's exactly what they've done here. And they've really fused that together in a really slick way. I loved that. But as soon as we saw that bridge, I was like, yes, brilliant. That works really well. Between the Abrams or the Kelvin timeline films bridge and this, I'll take this bridge yeah. every day of the week. This is why right? because this this looks like the Enterprise Bridge. Yeah. Now I, I I do kind of lean more towards the the other the, those people you're arguing with on Twitter <laughs> because <laughs> I just I I understand I understand what you're saying right, but it is all this not a nostalgic trip anyway. Like if you're gonna try and and get me because look it's Captain Pike look it's Spock right, like those yeah. same people are gonna respond really well to look it's the original series bridge. Now I actually I actually commented on. The Star Trek Discovery <laughs> Facebook page. <laughs> they posted a picture. First of all, they and this and this goes into our discussion here perfectly. They're advertising season two of Discovery. And it's a big picture of Spock, clean shaven Spock in his blue uniform from the last scene, in the last episode. Yeah, and they and they use that to advertise Star Trek Discovery. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, right. sure, right. Mm. And then then it says the quote is. See the iconic bridge of the USS Enterprise. And then I could not help myself. <laughs> I had to comment. And I said, and I posted a picture of the original series bridge from the 60s. And I said, you mean this? Because I don't remember seeing this. Oh, they, they triggered you, man. They triggered you there. <laughs> triggered. Big time. They got me. <laughs> I know. 
what the 2260s and 2250s look like mm. because we I've seen it, you know? Uh, and then when shows like D Space Nine and Enterprise revisited it, I they they recreated it perfectly, you know? And I say lean into it, you know? Lean into it. You can update that bridge the way it was on Intermirror Darkly. You you take the blinking lights and you make them actual view screens or something, right? But other than that, you update the production value and you can use that. And then because what are we doing here? We are doing fan service. Mm. Captain Pike and the Enterprise and Spock and all these things are fan service. You cannot get Jeffrey Hunter, Leonard Nimoy, and Major Barrett back as these characters. I understand that. But you can make the Enterprise look exactly the same. And they've done it before on yeah. Star Trek. All right? So, so that's where I land on it. That being said, I like the new bridge. It looks fine. But... That is the fanboy me coming out with my, <laughs> why doesn't it look the same? <laughs> you know, I get that. I do get completely get that argument. And and you're right. In, in, the, in terms of the fan service, it, it kind of makes sense to just go, oh, to hell with it. But I think the only problem with that is I think, yes, they're doing this for fan service for fans, but they are ultimately, and this is where it's a massive contradiction and a massive error because they do still want to appeal to the new fans. They do still want to appeal to new people who might be interested in Star Trek. That's why it looks differently. That's why the serialization is first and foremost, because that's what people expect from television these days. You know, people don't, young people who are watching TV, they grew up in the, 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 at the very least, the post-Soprano, you know, the Sopranos onwards era, which basically gave birth to cable TV to serialization, right, from the late 90s. They didn't grow up in the 90s where we had episodic trek with the odd two-parter or you know deep space nine doing the six-part station you know is um taken over arc which was the occupation which was really innovative at the time we were like wow this is six episodes of an ongoing story in star trek what like and then obviously later on it does like the the 10 episodes at the whatever at the end of season seven which again was a real step forward for the franchise you know, gave him birth to Enterprise doing the Zindi and all that kind of thing. But ultimately, they they still told individual stories, whereas Discovery doesn't. Discovery goes for broke. It is the Red Angel from the beginning to the end, pretty much. So, you know, it, it's it's trying to appeal to a very different new fan at the same time. So it, it's one of those things where I think had they suddenly had the aesthetic of Discovery, the aesthetic of the, you know, all the, all the, the, the Section 31 ship, you know, all these kind of things, and then you cut to the original bridge from the 1960s with all its very kitsch visuals, I think it would have been a massive, what? Like, it would have been a really jarring move, I think, in terms of the visual side. You know, because remember, that the, the bridge they've built is bigger. You know, that, that, that's, right, that bridge is smaller. It, 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 they would have probably looked like giants <laughs> in terms of how they were filming. <laughs> okay, so it's 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 like that i th- i think it would have been a bit too much of a sudden shift all the star trek fans would have loved it okay me myself included i think i would have geeked out a little bit but at the same time i might have gone oh this is weird this doesn't if you're going to do that make the discovery bridge from the beginning a bit more kitsch 60s you know do that at the same time make it all look that way and make it intentional as part of what you're doing but as usual discovery wants to have its cake and eat it and that that's what yes. that's what season 2 is all about it's wanting to have its cake and eat it, which is exactly why Spock is there. Perfect segue, Tony. Perfect I'm good. segue I'm, into the I'm, next topic of conversation. I'm a podcast host. I know I know how to segue, man. I'm telling you. <laughs> I, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> Spock. I and here here's the deal with 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 Spock, right? 
we love Spock because he's a certain kind of character, you know? Yeah. Uh, Leonard Nimoy's performance as Spock connected with a lot of people because he was playing an emotional being who could not show emotion, who if he did, his emotions were so powerful, right? I mean, we, we got glimpses of that in the original series. The Vulcans, it's all established, you know? And that's an intriguing character. How does this half-Vulcan, half-human find this balance and, 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 and his interplay with other characters because of who he is is interesting, you know? Mm. And, you know, the Abrams films and Discovery have decided, you know what? Forget that. <laughs> like, <laughs> that was, yeah, that was Spock. But this is Spock before we knew Spock. The Spock that you didn't, the untold story. I'm like, but but if I want to see Spock, I want to see Sp- yeah. the Spock we know. And yeah. I'm not saying he has to be exactly the same, but this Spock is an unrecognizable character. And, and, and you know, in, in the Abrams movies, like, they eventually kind of got there with Beyond. I think Beyond is the strongest as far as the the characters go, mm. you know? Mm. Um, uh, yeah. But, and then he was, as the movie itself says, emotionally compromised in Star Trek 09. <laughs> so there are, it's a, it's an alternate timeline. Like there's a lot going on here, but, but they tell us that this is the prime timeline, right? There's all these conversations. Oh, this is, this is the prime. This is what happened between the cage and the original series. I mean, they tell you that every day of the week, you know? And it's like, okay. But Spock is like, I enjoy feeling, and he knocks over a chess set, and he's like, "What is this?" Like, I and, and I thought, okay, like I thought, and this is not like my, this is not the show not meeting my expectations, so I'm upset at it. I just think it's poor writing. Like, so they find yeah. Spock, he's gone, he's gone a little crazy. He's mind. Spock does this. He minds well with weird creatures, right? That worked. V- Viger, the Horta, Nomad. There's mm-hmm. a there is a precedent for him mind melding with stuff. He mind smells mm-hmm. with the Red Angel. He goes a little crazy, right? Fine. Mm. He goes rogue, grows a beard, whatever, right? We get to if memory serves, and then he goes to tell us for, and they they clear his mind and they defrag his mind or whatever the Talusians do, and he's and he's and, he, and he's at that point he should be Spock again, right? He should shave his beard, put a uniform on, join the crew, you know. But instead, he's he's still like this angsty Spock for the rest of the season, and they act like it's some big like. The name's Bond, James Bond. At the end, when Spock comes out, it's like the I love yeah. the end of Casino Royale is brilliant. I love the end of that film. That feels earned, right? But then, yeah. oh look, it's a clean-shaven Spock in a blue uniform. Yeah. Although he's he's been doing that on the Enterprise for years. Yes, <laughs> so exactly. It's not a it's not a reveal. So anyway, what the 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 thing is, the thing you got to ask yourself with this is, what does this add to Spock as a character? What does any of this add? to the Spock we know. How how does how does this serve as an important character story to get us to the point of, you know, the, the first episode of 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 you know where no man no no, no man has gone before. Which which you know you, you I know that because the cage is set before Discovery. Okay. So you've Correct. got to, you've got to remember that this is after this, the next canonical time we see Spock is at the beginning of season one of the of, of the original series. So what does this really do to add to that character before we see him for the technically the first time in 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 a way okay and and i and my answer to this is nothing like he can't he doesn't have a sister by the end of it because he can't talk about her he's got to pretend she never existed right the relationship with Sarek is exactly the same as everything we will later see it makes no difference it's not really about him and Sarek at all nor same with Amanda the Sarek and Amanda stuff is is linked to Michael 
a character who they will have to pretend doesn't exist again for the rest of their lives, their long lives, into the next generation era for Sarek and all this. Okay? So what does it really add for Spock? Nothing. There's no reason to do this story. We don't need to see emo Spock. Okay? And like you said, the, the difference with the with the Kelvin timeline is that, it's for one thing, it's a different timeline. But that, you know, Star Trek 09 pretty quickly gets Spock to the point where we, we can recognize that character in Starfleet mm -hmm. being the character we pretty much know just played by Zachary Quinto. Okay? And then... Even in the early, you know, days when he is with Pike, you know, and, and Kirk's there and all this kind of thing. It, it's Spock. It's the Spock we know. Yes. Okay? But before Vulcan explodes, yes. Yeah. Uh, the Kobayashi yeah. Maru scene, that is Spock. That's yeah. Spock. Oh, I, the, the opening, the Vulcan council, him and Amanda, like that, that is 100% Spock. Yeah. 100% agree with you. But the emotional compromise that is, is based on this massive event that happens in his life, but it, it, and you, so you understand why Spock may be more emotional. The fight scene on the bridge with Kirk. You get the reason for that. I understand that. And then by the end of the film, again, he's he is Spock. It, it, it's, it's that different journey. Whereas with this, this is just trying to create drama, to create a scenario where Spock has to find the uniform again, where he has to discover himself, where he has to go through an emotional journey, where he bonds with his sister, when none of it has to happen. None of it needs to happen at all. And I suppose you could look at it and say, okay, well, well, who cares, right? It's a way to, it's a way to have Spock in the story. It, you know, we just it doesn't matter that we didn't know this period of his life. It doesn't change anything. And my point is, well, what's the point in doing it then? If it doesn't have any impact on the character that we then see in the 1960s, why even include it in the first place? Unless, to go back to my earlier point, you are trying to to simply use him as a cynical way to grab. I mean, you just said it. They're promoting Discovery with the picture of Spock in his uniform. How much more on the nose can you get as to what their motivations are with this? That is obviously why he's there. It is just to go make people go, oh, Spock, click. It's really cynical and it really annoys me because I don't think that he, I don't think, I mean, for one thing, whether it's the fact Ethan Peck is quite morose because he has to be or whether he's just not the best actor in the world, I don't know. But I found Spock really irritating slash annoying slash boring in this and to actually feel like spock spock of all people is boring and i wish he'd naff off the screen is astonishing okay yeah. I, I didn't want him there uh, when he was on screen i was like oh just go away i'm not interested in any of well, this it, like it, it's easy to it's easy to zone in on the aesthetics right it's like oh he's wearing he has a beard and he's wearing a, a suit from the matrix instead of uniform like, <laughs> that's just that's just icing on the cake of the fact that Spock, once once he's back and he's just there on the Discovery, he just he's just kind of there for the last yeah. for the last half of the season. Yeah, and you're like, uh, okay, like, of course, again, we're complaining like they made Spock the focus, but then it's like they need more Spock. It's like, no, if you're gonna bring him on and have him intricately tied to Michael Burnham, who's the center of this universe, as this show has established over two years, mm. uh, he needs more to do, you know. And talking about and talking about his relationship with Burnham, right? Like, like, what does this what does this tell us? This this tells us the journey of of him and Michael Burnham reconciling. But okay, look at the flashbacks they show us in If Memory Serves, right? Um, we see Michael come to live with Spock and Sarek and Amanda, and they're I don't know, they're young kids, okay? In the flashbacks where she runs away from home, they are also young kids, mm. so. They're like, yeah. I don't know, live together for, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt and say like a year, okay? I'm going to say they live together a year, and that is very, very, very generous because they use the same yeah. kids, the same actors, the same ages yeah. to show this. 
So you're telling me, you're telling me here, let's, let's think this through, everyone. They had a good relationship for about a year when they lived together. She ran away from home, right? Uh, told Spock he was a half-breed, half-breed little weird freak, runs away. That emotionally wounded him to the point that he didn't want to talk to her anymore, and he embraced logic, and that's why he chose the path he did. And they lived together in this house for another 10 years, I guess, <laughs> because she goes to the Vulcan Science Academy yeah. and graduates top of her class, but Sarek has to choose her over Spock again. He was, oh, look, this is why there's a rift between Spock and Sarek. I don't know. Okay, whatever. I, nah. A lot of people respond real well to that layer. I didn't so much, but be that as it may, Spock is younger than her. <laughs> so Spock is still there yeah. living in this house. She's like, I don't know, 22 at this point. Right, I, don't, I mean, graduating college, and then she goes off to the to the to the Shinzu from there um, when she's not accepted into the exploratory group or whatever, because Sarah had to choose one of his kids. And anyway, that that just doesn't track for me at all. Do people not realize this? Like, but they because mm. I thought like, oh, we're gonna see like a flashback of like you know five years ago when her and Spock had a falling out, right? Yeah. But no, it was like immediately after they lived together. So I don't, I just don't understand that. Like, but, but then at the end of season two, oh, I love you, sister. I don't know what I'm going to do without you. That is not earned. No, no, it's not earned. It, it's it's one of those things where you know I mentioned earlier about fan fiction and the fact that you know fan fiction is it, it, it feels very much like fan fiction. This whole thing it feels like the construct of a fan fiction story. Now, the, fan fiction is one of those things that exists because people feel the need to write something that it solves an equation for them. It could be an emotional equation. It could be a plot equation. If you look at a lot of fan fiction, a lot of it is about filling gaps. A lot of it is about people saying, right, well, I didn't like that choice, so I'm going to change that. Or um, I, don't know, I don't know what that story was, so I'm going, to, I'm going to write that story, and I'm going to fill in that gap for me, for my own personal canon. I'm going to do that. Or, you know, the people who write all the slash fiction and things like that who want to feel like Kirk and Spock hook up or that kind of thing. They're doing it for their own, to, to satiate their own fantasies and all these kind of things. People write fan fiction for themselves in order for their own reasons. Now, the reason that people don't tend to put fan fiction on TV and make that and adapt that kind of, that kind of stuff is because it isn't really very translatable. It isn't the kind of thing that really you should be putting out there to the, to the populace. Yes, people release their fan fiction to other fans, but it's a fairly niche thing on the whole, okay? You know, you only have to look at something like um, how something like uh, uh, Fifty Shades of Grey gets pilloried by people who actually write things and read books because it's, it was fan fiction originally and then it was repackaged and sold and it's rubbish, you know, for that exact reason in that it was just a fantasy that somebody was putting out there. It's the same principle with, with the Burnham and Spock thing is that it feels like somebody wrote a fan fiction story that gave Spock a sister in order to give him this emotional relationship with a, with a woman that informs his life to, for their own purposes. What, what, what's happened is somewhere along the line, somebody's picked that up and gone, you know, it could have been Brian Fuller, and picked that up and went, oh, let's do that. Let's put that on television. That's brilliant. People are going to love that. It's going to make a world of sense. People are going to find that really deepens Spock's character. And, you know, we can, we can create this whole other world for him. And it doesn't make any sense. Not just because of the fact it doesn't it's not mentioned in in the 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 history of star trek and the reason for that is she doesn't exist yes okay but it beyond that it's the whole point of why create an entire thing you know burnham could have had the whole vulcan human dilemma as a, as a human which is interesting it's an interesting inversion of what you do with spock you know by having a human yes. become part of that vulcan life great you could have still have done that she could have been the daughter of you know whatever Vulcan Talon or whatever, some random dude, right, from a different family. You could have still played that beat. She didn't have to be the daughter of Sarek. 
you know yeah, it, it's that whole thing of you. There, there is a reason you're doing this that goes beyond the, com- the the parameters of telling a story about you know about a character that makes enriches that character. You know, if you're gonna write a show about Spock's young days, write a show about Spock's young days. Do that. Make that your project. Okay. But what they've tried to do is fuse the two together, and this is why. You end up like you're talking about these inconsistencies about Spock's motivations when she's young, and they have, have this fallout, and then it be, you know, and the fact it isn't earned because you don't feel by the end of season two that anything really has happened. You know, yes, okay, Burnham has developed mainly into a crybaby. <laughs> All she does is cry throughout this whole season. I'm like, oh, do me a Sonequa Martin Green is great. I'm not taking nothing away from her, and the cast are really good in Discovery in terms of what they do with the material, but Burnham was a really interesting, flawed, acerbic, quite dark character in the first two episodes. And by now, mm-hmm. she's just an emotional wreck of a human being. She does cry about every All single episode. You're absolutely right, Tony. And the whole thing, I'm just, I'm just sick of it. I just want her... Uh, they've developed her. In a, it, they've undeveloped her, almost, for me. Anyway, that's a different story. Mm. The point is that I don't see what <laughs> Spock adds really to her or vice versa. Which makes me feel it's like I say, I have that very cynical view about what this whole thing has been about from the beginning. Well, as established in the season finale, uh, Michael Burnham is responsible for the, the friendship between Kirk and Spock, Tony. <laughs> that oh, infuriated me. That was that painful. infuriated me. Like that. Okay, hey, go find someone out there who's way different than you and become friends with them. I'm like, are you telling like the the Michael Burnham standing on the shoulders of previous Star Trek has to stop, and I hope it does now that she's a thousand years in the future. Because, like, they've made her the center of this universe, and now she's like, she basically tells uh, she's responsible indirectly. I get it, but like for the Kirk and Spock friendship, because that's what they're saying with that dialogue. That's, what, that's why they're saying that why 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 a guy like Spock and a guy like Kirk would be friends. No, you know what? Sometimes you just connect with people. You might. That's the beauty of friendship. You don't. <laughs> You don't know who you're going to run into and become friends with, and you're different, and yeah. that's cool. And there's a lot of best friends out yeah. there who are very different, and that's what's so cool about Spock and Kirk. They're extremely different, yet they gravitate toward each other like brothers, and they have one of the greatest friendships in, in science fiction and all of fiction, and it's yeah. iconic. And to attribute it to Michael Burnham's last-minute suggestion to Spock before she goes a thousand years in the future is insulting. And yeah. there it is. I, that, and that might sound harsh, but I really felt that way. No, I agree. It's nonsense, cod-philosophical rubbish that... that that she spouts in order to make her seem profound and give him give us them some amazing parting last words as a and again it's another you can practically hear Alex Alex Kurtzman shouting through the mic going hey audience Kirk hey hey it's just like stop stop with this okay we get it it's a prequel series it's set before it's TOS series 0.5 fine okay we get the point by now but stop trying to hammer this home so much that it links into TOS. You know, one thing I, I wrote about was how it's like, it, it, it's trying to do exactly what Rogue One did in the Star Wars universe, but worse. Rogue One obviously plays into A New Hope pretty much to the second. The final episode, final scene of that movie links into Rogue One, into A New Hope to the second. But that film tells a story that you don't have, you don't need to have watched Rogue One to watch A New Hope. You don't. You could watch A New Hope. You could never watch Rogue One and you could still enjoy the Star Wars franchise completely, right? But if you add, if you watch Rogue One, it adds 
some extra level of depth. It adds some extra level of context to a, a throwaway line that is then built into this really great story with a really dark, tragic ending. I, you know, that is quite well done. It's not perfect. It's a little bit wonky in some respects, but it, it generally, for me, it works. This, the very idea that that Spock would have had that in the back of his mind when he's getting on well with Kirk going, oh yes, I remember what Michael told me. Oh, Michael can't talk about her, sorry. She doesn't exist. She's a thousand years in the future and we can't say anything about her. But yeah, maybe he's my friend. Maybe he's the one that she's talking about. It's like, come on. Like, it is nonsense. It's 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 insulting nonsense so I, I i'm completely with you zach and i, I, I at that You're point yeah i'd already i'd already given up on it you know i was I, by that point i was watching it purely for the the fact I'm, I'm loyal to star trek and there were certain aspects i was enjoying the visual side the production side some of the performances the hope that it might all come together and pay off sidebar it doesn't but <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't it's not worth it by the end but um, because for the one thing, without getting too heavily, we're not we're not the edge, I know, but they don't need to even go in the future by the end. There's yes. no reason for yes. them to go through that black hole because it's already been wrapped up. The threat is gone. They don't need to go there in the first place. So, you know, there are, there are lots of things about it by the end. I'm like, this is just, you, you are just constantly writing yourself out of corners. And then, and it felt like a real way to just have that final scene of them all on the bridge you know, and warping off to the Captain Pike series. And the other thing is, well, which is why we're on this subject, and this may sound very contradictory to what I was saying all through this podcast, but I was a bit disappointed we didn't see more of number one, or Una, as she's named after um, Una McCormack, the novelist. Um, but, uh, yeah, she she was she's an interesting character, and in the time fiction, she has this whole really mysterious background that is really fascinating, which is very different now from what they're doing, but you know, she was really underused in a way. So it's like I don't know what I don't know what they're doing. <laughs> it really does go one way or the other. Yeah, see, number one is a lot like Pike, where that we know who she is and that she exists, but she's a complete blank slate, and you can do what you want with her. So yeah, do whatever you want with number one, or and bring on more of these characters like like Doctor Voice and Jose Tyler, and mm. um. I'm glad that she got more to do than like that five minute scene where she ate a hamburger and like yeah. the fourth and fifth episode. <laughs> yeah, me too. I was yeah. like, the whole season, I was like, wait, they made such a big deal out of casting Rebecca Romaine as number Romaine. one, you know, fairly mm. well known name, mm. actress. Mm. And she's in one scene and then she finally comes back and decides, I mean, she had an okay amount of screen time in the, in the season finale, but I agree with you. I feel like I should have done more with her. But um, also, complete aside, uh, Yeoman Colt is now an alien. Uh, which does not mm. help the the time does not help the this is the prime timeline and nothing got changed by the red angel <laughs> um, yeah because <laughs> they're like yeah we just thought it'd be cool to make her an alien I'm like what what but, <laughs> like, you yeah, just can't you, do that <laughs> yeah because you you do have this theory don't you I mean you, have you talked about this on standard orbit yet about your your you theory know, about how it's changed the timeline I I don't think I have a, on on air here uh, but but yeah I'll, I'll, in in a nutshell I was like okay. This is smart. There's so many technological and story and character inconsistencies between Discovery and the original series, but now they've introduced time travel with the Red Angel. Uh, they've established that that uh, th this being has gone back in time and, and changed lots of stuff, or at least attempted to change things. She saved Michael Burnham's life, you know, because it was her mom. 
Her mom saved Michael Burnham, and that that's like, oh, well, that's why she's Spock's sister. That makes perfect sense. Good job. <laughs> Good job, Discovery. <laughs> but then apparently it's like, no, this always happened. <laughs> I'm like, no, yeah. you had a you had a perfect out. Like, it doesn't – look, to quote Alan Moore, it's an imaginary tale, aren't they all, right, to paraphrase, <laughs> but a uh, famous yeah. comics author, right? So does yeah. it really matter? No. But it, it, it makes a lot of cool sense. You can just say, oh, yeah, well, this is a – this the, like, why are you so obsessed with having to be the prime timeline, right? Why mm-hmm. does it matter, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, just say, yeah, th- this jutted off of that, and that's why everything looks different and why Spock has a sister now. And I'm like, okay, great. And that's why I thought the J.J. Abrams approach with Star Trek Nine was brilliant because it's a sequel, a reboot, and a prequel all at the same time. And mm-hmm. that's, I say that all the time, but it, that remains true. So had mm-hmm. they just done that, that would have been fine. And I, I had a suspicion that what they would do – at the end of Star Trek uh, Discovery Season 2, was with all this time travel, timey-wimey, wibbly-wobbly you know, stuff, yeah. uh, they would, like, ara- like, like, erase her existence or something like that. You know, like... like yeah. Like, th- the actions of the Discovery would have... Uh, would still, like, take place. Like, they would save the universe by, like, basically erasing themselves from history to a certain extent, mm. right? Uh, the yesterday's enterprise kind of situation, basically. Yeah. You know, we're just seeing. We just caught. We just got caught in. The, we we enter. We entered that timeline two years earlier than we did on yesterday's enterprise. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, uh, that, yeah. So, and I'm like, okay, that's cool. Uh, and again, I, I don't not like what they did because it's not what I thought they might do. I don't like what they did because it doesn't make any sense. And then even so, what is their grand solution, Tony? It's to basically do that just without time travel. It's to say. <laughs> Don't talk about the spore drive. Don't talk about it's, discovery. Don't talk about Michael Burnham or any of the crew. Apparently, how are you going to keep the Vulcans and the Klingons quiet on this? This is an internal Starfleet investigation. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Section thirty-one needs to be reorganized. You know. Uh, oh, by the way, rip all those hollow emitters out of the Enterprise. Like that's not the problem. Like mm. you know, that, that, those are, that's icing on the cake of of bad story decisions. And that's yeah. that's where I land on it. So it's it's re- it's trying to retrofit what you're trying to do, which is contrary to the continuity that people really find in, you know, fandom continuity matters, you know, in, in Star Trek, it's always mattered. You know, it matters to a lot of these different fandoms because people really do invest in these worlds. They invest in these characters. They want to feel like it's one consistent universe, like the real universe. Well, actually the real, the real world is very inconsistent, but (laughs) actually, actually, yeah, they, they want to feel fiction has a consistency that it makes sense that it tracks and people love a good, people love a good wink back to the past or they love a good connective tissue to, you know, to other things. I mean, you only have to look at all the time fiction with Star Trek in that all of it always is tying up to something else and linking it to everything else. And that's great. And it's really entertaining. It's really thrilling. But there comes a point where you've got to think about this, whether, whether it's, you know, what, how has Star Trek survived over the years? You know, Star Trek survived in the in the 80s and the 90s and be, and became the shows that we now consider classics and we love and we watch all the time because it did new things. It did tether to the past. It did have links. It did have episodes. You know, you did have Scotty pop up in The Next Generation. You had Worf come over to DS9. You had them go back, Trials and Tribulations. You had Voyager linked back to the Undiscovered Country. You had all these different things. You had Enterprise Series Season 4, which is as fan fiction as you can get in some ways, right? You know, you had all this stuff, and that's fine, and it's it's great. But all of those shows, in their own way, tried to do something new. Some of them worked, some of them didn't. Didn't, but they 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 were pushing what Trek was, particularly Deep Space Nine. Um, but Discovery hasn't done that at all. 
It is purely filling, plugging gaps. It's purely writing those bits of canon in. It's trying to connect things up. It's trying to do what tie-in material essentially does. And comics and, and books, which do do really well, but aren't canon for that specific, or aren't, aren't on television for that specific reason. Because when you look back in years to come, I honestly don't think anyone, anyone in 30 years will be, or 20 years, will be looking back at Project Daedalus, which I thought was the nadir of this season, quite frankly, and watch that with the same love that they will look back and they'll look back and they'll watch, I don't know, The Inner Light or they'll watch Chain of Command or they'll watch um, In the Pale Moonlight. It's just not going to happen. People, because, a Bok Time or The Doomsday Machine. This is Standard Orbit, so i got to get some TOS sorry. episodes in there. <laughs> yeah, Space Seed. There we go. I love there that one. Um, or The Tholian Web. Right, great. Okay, yeah. sorry. Sorry, guys. Sorry. I mentioned the other shows. <laughs> Um, but yeah, do you know what I mean? It's like they're, they're, they're not, they're not going to, it's not going to happen in the same way because they are not individual pieces of Star Trek trying to push the envelope, trying to create that world that you are passionate about in the same way. It is, all it's doing is tethering up to things you've already seen. All it's doing is trying to link back to the original series in a nostalgic sense that is cynical and it's manipulative and it ultimately is not going to create the next era of Star Trek. It's why, I, quite honestly, I'm really glad that we're getting the Picard show. I'm really glad we're getting animated series which are going to try new things, new angles into the Star Trek universe because they're the shows that in... I mean, the Picard show could could be doing... Well, the Picard show could, in theory, end up very similar to what Discovery Season 2 has done and be a complete next-generation nostalgia fest. It might. Who knows? But I'd hope it's not. And this is what... It, everything needs to move on. And season two is, is an indication of why, if they keep doing this, Star Trek is not going to have the same level of passionate fandom when, we, when we're all dead <laughs> in 50 <laughs> years, okay? Well, you might not be dead. I hope you're not dead in 50 years, Zach. I think I might be, the way I eat. But, <laughs> right? but you know what I mean? It's, I just don't think that's going to be there. And that's what worries me. It's a broader... It's a broader concern about where Star Trek is heading. The past isn't the way to go. It, we can love the past, and we always will, but the, the show needs to go forward. Tony, I say let the past die. Kill it if you have to. That's <laughs> Maybe I'm being too nitpicky. I know we've we've kind of gone on a negative path here, but we're just venting our frustrations as fans. Like If we didn't love Star Trek the way we do... We wouldn't care, you know. No, and we it, love Star Trek, so we care, and that's why I have these dipics. Yeah, know? exactly, and we do care. And and you know, I'd be lying if I if I said that some of these things on an aesthetic level weren't really enjoyable. Pike was Pike was great. The, the Enterprise Bridge, as I said, was really cool. It was nice to see Number One, even though she. It would have been nice to see have a, more to do, even though I'd rather have the Discovery crew have more to do. But you know what I mean. There the, the were absolutely aspects of this which I thought were, were really enjoyable. But it shouldn't have been an entire season. It shouldn't have been the, the whole framework of the second season of a new Star Trek show set, you know, 10 years before all of the elements. It shouldn't have been a prequel to the original series. It should have been a prequel set in the era of the original series, which is what season one was. Far more. And this is where they've gone way too far into the nostalgia. So I'm hopeful that even though, you know, there won't really be much recourse to talk about it on Standard Orbit, I guess, season three, it would be nice to see Discovery, 
use this opportunity to, you know, set in the 33rd century or whatever it's going to be to really push the envelope of what Star Trek is doing. Create something really new and weird and different and modern and, you know, stop looking back. That, that's all I want it to do for now. Stop looking back. Because if we keep looking back, we've got all that. We've got all that to cherish. We've got all of the original series to cherish, all the movies to cherish, all the sequel series. We don't need the same. Give us new Trek. Push the boundary. Go where no man, no one, has gone before. That was a terrible well shot. That was a terrible shot. You do shot in a way better than me. I need to stick to Shybok. Shybok. Yes, we have our roles. I'm Kirk, and you're Cybok yeah. in the Star Trek Five yeah. audio yeah. play. So, yeah. well, yeah. well said, Tony. Though, and it's always a pleasure talking Star Trek with you. So, I'm, I'm sure we made a lot of new friends online based off our hot takes this episode. But hey, <laughs> these are our opinions. Everybody has one, right? Yeah, sure. So, uh, Tony, if people want to hear more of your hot Star Trek Discovery takes <laughs> and beyond, where can people find you online? Well, uh, what I will say just before I answer this is, um, well, I thanks for having me back on, Zach. It's been great. B, um, I'm, if, if anyone, and I have had a few heated debates about Discovery on, online, if you enjoyed it, I think that's great. And I'm really happy for you. I wish I had in the same way. You know, some people have really loved this season and I think that's wonderful. And it's great that Star Trek's back on and I'm really pleased for you. I really am. But, you know, you've got people just remember that there are alternate opinions are available and are okay. So if you want a few more of them, <laughs> go and find me. Um, I'm quite a lot on Twitter at, at AJ Black Writer, um, and you can find my uh, my site. Uh, I do have stuff on Set the Tape. I've slightly moved away a little bit from that for now, um, but you can also find my site, theculturalconversation.com, which is where I'm mainly pitching my tent right now and writing about various different Star Trek. I'm writing actually, Zach, about Year Five, the new Star Trek comic. That's I'm going to have a review of the first, the original series. Um, season five in comic in the comic world, which is coming out tomorrow uh, as of recording, so it'll be out by the time this episode is released. So check out my review of that because it's uh, I think that's going to be a great great comic actually um, for Kirk's original crew. So yeah, that's mainly where you can find me. Great, no, I'm a big fan of IDW's work uh, with the Star Trek comics. They've gotten the license. I've kind of had my eye on that as well. So I'll look forward to to reading your your review on that. Yeah, it's really good. It's a really good first issue. So fingers crossed they keep it going. Excellent, excellent. Well, the original series being incorporated into Star Trek Discoveries, and the only thing we've been talking about on Trek FM this week, here's a quick look at what else you might have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Literary Treks. The, it, it always frustrated me because on, on screen, we saw in depth the Klingon government, the Bajoran government, the Cardassian government, to a lesser extent the Romulan government, we almost never saw the Federation government. You know, we, we three three times we saw a president. Once we saw the council. The council was mentioned any number of times, but we never really saw it. Warp 5. When I go to throw a switch for the first time, you know, 4,000 amp switch, I got to wear this heavy, thick, padded uniform to make sure that if something went wrong, I don't die. But if I can get some Tholian silk. Yeah, you could look good be like a, doing it at the same time. Right. right t-shirt and, and jeans and we're good Maybe some I, i'm just thinking for when i go to mexico <laughs> i can have a stylish tholian silk mexican hawaiian or a hawaiian shirt I love yeah because you gotta know that that stuff would that, that stuff would be light on you it would look good it would breathe well 
Earl Gray. Yeah, and the odd thing was I really didn't know. And I remember my dad came to me. I was like nine years old. I'm watching TV downstairs in New Jersey. And I'm watching some old James Cagney movie. And James Cagney was, you know, in a scene where he was, you know, beating up a bunch of people like in a barroom brawl. Or, and my dad came downstairs. It was like 10 o'clock at night. And he saw me really watching James Cagney beat up all these guys. And my dad said to me, you really like James Cagney? And I said, yeah, I do. And he goes, do you want to be like James Cagney? And I thought about it and I said, no, but I want to be those guys he's beating up. <laughs> Melodic treks. And in this music, you have these soaring horns that introduce the melody and they carry it through. And the sound, because the register is very high, the sound and because of the nature of the French horn, the sound is very hollow. It's somewhat ghostly and haunting. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, you can get the show on iTunes or the Apple Podcast app. Be sure to hit the subscribe button. That helps us out greatly and makes it easier for other listeners to find the show. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course, you can stream and download the MB3 file from our website and grab the RSS link as well. If you would like to get in touch with us here at Trek FM, you can always find us on trekfm slash contact and look at the sidebar on the show page, or you can go to speakpipe.com slash trekfm and please leave us a voice message. You can also contact us through Twitter at trekfm, Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm, and the Babel Conference. Type the Babel Conference, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook or go to our website at trekfm.com and click Discussion on the menu bar. Another way you can help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week is to become a patron of the network on Patreon. If you visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm, you'll find our current goals, our different milestone contribution levels, along with all the great perks we have for you. These perks include early access to content, exclusive content, producer credit, seats on our content development team, and more. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. Speaking of Patreon, thank you as always to our associate producers for Standard Orbit. They are Norman C. Lau, Nick Anastasio, Tim Robertson, Richard Marquez, Corey Elrod, Dan Rhodes, and Mike Richards. Your contributions, your help, your support, they mean the world to us, and we appreciate you being associate producers on Standard Orbit. As for me, you can find me on Twitter at MoronZach, that's M-O-O-R-E-O-N-Z-A-C-H. I'm also the host of my own podcast, Always Hold On To Smallville, where we talk about each and every episode of that Young Superman show. You can find us on Twitter at AlwaysMallville, with one S. I'm also the co-host of Franchise Fatigue, a podcast where we look at sequels, remakes, movie franchises, and when a franchise gets fatigued. You can find us on Twitter at UFP Earth, part of the United Federation of Podcasts. So thanks everyone for listening, and join us again next time here on Trek FM for another episode of Standard Orbit. <laughs>